Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Find out why McMaster University is apologizing for what it calls a grave oversight. Also, another honor for Link. The SEBA deadline has come and gone. A first since the Cold War. Fake news on social. And Japan joins an elite club. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. McMaster University recently apologizing for what it calls a grave oversight. This effort included Sir John A. McDonald Day on a school calendar that was sent to medical students. The school says, quote, We inadvertently included the mention of Sir John A. McDonald Day, which is a day that commemorates a person who was responsible for the genocide and oppression of indigenous peoples in Canada. And we know that statues of our nation's first prime minister have been removed in numerous cities across the country, including here in Hamilton. Greg Pizetsky is an intellectual property lawyer with an interest in Canadian history and a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Greg, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great, thanks. Your reaction to McMaster's apology? Um, well, I was, to be honest, it's what we expect these days, but it's not what we should expect from a university. Um, it, it mostly ignores the historical record and simply repeats the canards we've heard in the in the news for years now. What should people know of Sir John A.? What, what do you believe is not being told? Uh, well, first, I just remind listeners that he was our first prime minister and was prime minister for 19 of the first 25 years of Canada's existence. So he is quite an important player, both pre-Confederation and in the early years of the country. Most of the controversy around him surrounds the policies of the Department of Indian Affairs uh, when he was Prime Minister and acted as Minister of Indian Affairs and relate also to the uh, Indian school system. So, uh, I, and I've been looking into this issue for four or five years now. Um, it flows from my interest in genealogy and then Canadian history, etc. What I'd like people to know about him is that, in fact, he's probably responsible personally by his policies for saving tens of thousands of Native lives. And, uh, you know, the, the, his policies are hardly those of a genocidist. They were more policies of someone who was greatly concerned with the well-being of our Indigenous peoples. And the policies I have in mind in particular were both before Canada existed, when he was Premier of Upper Canada, which is now Ontario, uh, and after Confederation, he ran vaccination programs to vaccinate every Native Canadian against smallpox. Smallpox was deadly. They had little resistance. This program was very expensive. He sent people out into the most remote parts of the country, which were months of journey away from um, Toronto, Montreal. Second, uh, when the buffalo population collapsed, which was a result of a mix of overhunting, the introduction of cattle and horses um, and climate change, uh, the buffalo population collapsed tens of thousands of native Canadians relied on that population for food, for clothing, for tooling made from bones and horns and the like. So he had to introduce immediately the largest famine relief program in Canadian history to feed tens of thousands of natives who are dependent on that food source. It was a huge logistical effort when there was no railway across the country. The food had to be sent to the States, shipped across the States, travel nor north by a cart pulled by horse or ox. Um, and he saved literally tens of thousands of lives. So those two initiatives alone should give him credit, a lot of credit. The, but he, 
he also insisted on having treaties in place before settlement was allowed across all of Western and Northern Canada. And remember, the uh, Canada, the colonies originally were just the southern part of Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes. Everything else was purchased from Great Britain as part of the Rupert's Land Purchase, an enormous territory. And he insisted on having treaties in place before he allowed settlement. We can contrast that policy with the United States, which did not have such a policy, and where 60,000 Indigenous Americans died and 20,000 settlers died in Indian Wars. Greg, let me jump in here, because we we heard with uh, or through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that thousands of Indigenous children were forced to attend those schools, and many of them died there, many of them suffered you know, abuse. Should McDonald not wear that, or at least part of that? Well, the school, the information on the schools that we get in the media, again, it's a bit of a slanted story. Uh, first of all, Residential schools existed in Canada before Macdonald was prime minister. They've existed from the 1600s, 1700s, uh, all voluntarily attended. When he became prime minister and we acquired all of the Western territory, all of Western Canada and the North, um, the treaties required, the treaties we signed with the native tribes required we provide schooling. And to do that, Macdonald opened uh, or built about 120 day schools and about 30 or 40 residential schools. Uh, attendance was voluntary. It was voluntary throughout his life. It was voluntary for many years after his life. And even uh, into the 1950s, McDonald died in 1891, even into the 1950s, most Native students always attended a day school, not a residential school. That was the norm, go to a day school. If they were in a remote area, they provided a residential school, Regrettably or not, the dropout rate in residential schools was 50% after grade one. So half the kids didn't even finish grade one of those that went to a residential school. And that was, as I say, that was not the majority of kids. Most kids went to a day school and walked home every night like everybody else. So he's getting a bit of a, he's being tarred with a bad rap there. Some schools were good. Some schools were not so good. Um, so but, do, you, do you believe this is cancel culture on overdrive? I think it is cancel culture on overdrive, and we see it around us for other figures. Um, there's no attempt to get historical balance, to look at the issues that were faced, what the resources were, because they didn't have the kind of resources we have now to fly things everywhere and multi-billion dollar uh, government funding. Um, so I just think we need a bit of balance. And I think if we look at it in a balanced way, we would think that Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, in fact, should be celebrated as a symbol of reconciliation because of his efforts to help uh, support and protect uh, Canada's Native peoples. Greg, uh, interesting conversation. Thanks for uh, shedding some insight into this. Thanks for inviting me. Have a great day. You too. Greg Piazetsky is an intellectual property lawyer with an interest in Canadian history and a citizen of the Métis Nation of Ontario. Uh, Interesting topic, no doubt about it. There is a lot of gray area. There's There's a lot of bad that came from the government of the day, as we know, as we have learned. And I think as we continue to learn through this process, that's where we're going to get to a better place. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What an exciting day it was yesterday on Lincoln Alexander Day. Down at Queen's Park over in Toronto, a new bust was unveiled honoring the late Lincoln Alexander. He was Canada's first black MP, the first ever black lieutenant governor. Two examples of how this man blazed a trail for many that followed. And yesterday's event attracted family members and dignitaries, including 
our next guest, Erica Alexander, Link's granddaughter and a Link Bust Committee member. And we're going to get to that in a second here with Erica Alexander, who joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Erica, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm fantastic. (laughs) I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us this morning. So yesterday, a commemorative bust of your granddad was unveiled at Queens Park. I've seen it, and I think it looks absolutely amazing. What was your first impression when you laid eyes on this commemorative bust? Um, So I had witnessed um, a few photos previously to it being unveiled, just uh, between me and the artist, Quentin. And seeing it in person was just, it was an amazing feeling. It's such a a beautiful piece of work. And the artist, he put so much uh, thought and uh, um, time into it, really uh, targeting my grandfather's character. And I think he did an excellent job. And so when it was unveiled, it was just uh, very, we were very much in awe of of it. And sorry, it was bigger than life size. So it was just a, a beautiful thing to witness and and for all of us, the room to see it at the same time was a really impactful moment. Link would have turned 102. What do you yeah. think he would have said of the bust? I think he would have thought uh, it was a very um, accurate depiction of him. I think he would have thought it was a very, uh, you could see how good looking he is in, in the sculpture. And I think he would have been just overjoyed that the uh, sculpture will find its home <clears throat> at Queen's Park um, for, you know, for however long going into the future. And it was a place, you know, that he called home. And so to have a bus there of him, I think it's just a, a great honor for him. Yeah, there's no doubt he probably would have cracked the joke and said how good looking it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you think it symbolizes? What do you think it represents? And what do you think people are going to think about when they see that bust at Queen's Park? I think it's absolutely a conversation piece. Um, I think that it will create a lot of talk and and bring up a lot of uh, stories and it's going to inspire a lot of youth and I think the fact that it's the first black bust um, of a black person in Canada that will be housed at Queen's Park I think it's just a very uh, momentous time and it will create um, a lot of inspiration going forward in the future and I don't think it'll be the the last Um, and I think for generations it will be the story of how Link got there and it will just inspire many generations to come as, as they go throughout Queen's Park. Erica Alexander is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Erica is the granddaughter of the great Lincoln Alexander, also a member of the Link Bust Committee. There was a commemorative bust of the late Lincoln Alexander unveiled yesterday at Queen's Park, the first ever featuring a black person. And what was the conversation like in the room when this bust is unveiled and and people are checking it out? Um, very, a lot of excitement, um, just a lot of happiness and overjoy, uh, overjoyed. Um, the committee worked so hard um, to make this happen over the past many years. And I just think people were just elated um, that the event itself was so successful and it was so beautiful. And um, just the revealing of the bust, it's like we've, we've, everything that we had planned had finally come to fruition. And I think... It was just a very uh, happy time, and you could feel that in the room. We do know that a lot of schools take um, day trips to Queen's Park to learn about, you know, the history of Ontario's political system, and they're going to see this bus. They're going to have that conversation about what your grandfather was all about. Mm-hmm. I- is there a nugget that they won't find out that you can share with us? About the bus? Or, or oh, no, about him. About him? Um 
Well, the Queen's Park has created a display um, that my family has provided a lot of items to go along with the uh, the bus that will also tell a story. Um, but, I mean, my grandfather was very much uh, uh, just kind of like he had a, a regular guy side to him. And, and what that means is he was a very kind person. And I think um, when we, people who have never met him before would want to know that he loved to speak to people. He loved to stop. You know, I, I hear countless stories of, of the ways that my grandfather impacted individuals. I hear um, hundreds of stories at these events, and I'm I'm never um, I'm never uh, not excited to hear them. And I think what people want to know about my grandfather is that he was very much just someone who would stop and give you the time to let you speak, and he treated everyone equally. And I think that's a big part of why he he got to where he was going because he was such a um, a sincere and and transparent person. When was the first time you learned that he was this famous trailblazer? <laughs> Um, pretty young, I guess, um, probably in elementary school at some point, because he used to, him and my grandmother, Yvonne, used to visit, um, you know, schools that my sister and I were at, and he was very, um, as much as he was a very busy person in politics, he was also very much, um, dedicated to our life and, um, was very present. Um, so I, I kind of saw how other people gravitated towards him or the reaction towards him as a child, and I kind of knew. Link has inspired many people to maybe take up law, go into politics or education. What did he inspire yeah. you to do? Um, I'm actually at that point now in my life where um, I am more interested in my grandfather's political life and have some aspirations to go in that direction. So I would say that as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to understand that world a little bit more. And and uh, he would definitely have inspired me that way, but also just being a hard worker and and being dedicated to your goals and, and not giving up. That's a great inspiration. And Erica, we really thank you for spending some time with us this morning on Good Morning Hamilton. Thank you so much for inviting me. Erica Alexander is the granddaughter of the late, great Lincoln Alexander, a commemorative bust of Link unveiled yesterday at Queen's Park. If you haven't seen some of the photos or videos online, it is majestic. What a phenomenal job uh, the artist did with this. And really a... An iconic moment, not only for the family, but I, th I think for people in this province, people in this country, to go see and get inspired because Link was such an inspirational human being. Uh, Lincoln Alexander passed away in 2012 by the age, uh, or at the age of 90. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, producer Liz, um, a few days ago, shared an Instagram post with me, and it, it was shared to the wider global audience just before the holidays. And it came from the Pale Blue Dot Shop here in Hamilton. And so I'll read a little bit of you because it really struck a chord with me and really painted a picture of how things are going. So here's part of the message. Taking this time to say thank you to everyone who has supported us and other small businesses this holiday season and throughout the year. Swirling sentiments of gratitude for your presence in the shop, filling the space with your good spirits and kindness. I feel called to share that our support of local small businesses has never been more important. It's been a rough go coming out of the last four years, seeing the need in our cities and hearing multiple announcements of small Hamilton businesses closing their doors has been heavy on my heart. The post goes on to say the cost of everything is going up, sales are still down for the most, 
And as our local businesses still struggle, the government is calling in the SIBA loans, which we know the deadline was just last week. So forever, thank you. Thank you for every purchase, big or small. Thank you for opting to shop with us over Amazon or big box stores. We know that budgets are tighter these days. And I want you to know that your decision to support small businesses means so much to so many lives. That post again, at least a portion of it, from the pale blue dot shop here in Hamilton. Joining us now is the owner of the shop, Marie Luciani, who joins us on GMH. Marie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rick. You're hearing the words that you shared on social. Um, this was obviously, it, 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 as I said, it struck a chord with me because it's a little bit of a call for help to say, yeah, we're struggling. But it's also a, hey, thanks for helping us out. What has it been like over the last little while being a local business owner with inflation and the cost of living and SIBA loans being recalled? Yeah, it's definitely been a challenge. I mean, it's always been a challenge, but the past four years have really made everything kind of kick up into high gear. And um, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Um, Sales are not back to um, pre-2020 sales and we're still still working to keep afloat. The Christmas rush has come and gone. Was that a big help or did you notice fewer people coming through the doors because of where we at with our economy? This Christmas was so lovely. First of all, I will just say everything that everybody was in such good spirits and the support was really there. And it's I'm so thankful for that because the Christmas season really does help carry small businesses through the first quarter of the slow the slow quarter of the year, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely not, not quite back to pre twenty twenty just yet. Did you were you impacted by the SEBA deadline at all? Um, well, we were all hoping for an extension for sure because it was it would really help just keep that cushion. Um, we made sure to have it paid back because we really didn't want to risk losing that forgiveness of that um, that portion of the loan. Um, but a lot of people were not able to do that because they they needed to use it, and yeah, I really feel for those who couldn't who couldn't pay that back. It has been a tough go, and we know that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has said that many Canadian businesses, most of them mom and pop shops, just won't be able to survive this latest blow, which is very unfortunate. Mary Luciani is the owner of the Pale Blue Dot Shop in Hamilton, and is joining us here on GMH. By the way, you can go online thepalebluedotshop.com and search and uh, maybe buy some earth-friendly products. There's a lot of uh, things to see in the shop. What is the buzz in the local community? The, 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 you know, the local mom-and-pop shops, those local shops that are, you know, eager for your business, hoping you shop local. What is the conversation like? Honestly, everybody, such hard workers, you will never hear them complain. Like, you very rarely hear people complain about things. Um, especially on James Street North, I've noticed the co- the conversation o- is always just like, "Hey, like, what else can we do in our community? What else? What else is going on?" And um, you can follow at on James North at on dot James North, um, and we're always sharing what's going on there. Like, it's such a vibrant community. People are just our small business owners are just go getters. You can never really hear them complain. What's the hot seller in the shop these days? Oh, these days um, we just expanded our stationary line so we have these really cool traveler's notebooks um and we're really excited about that well it's nice to hear that the pale blue dot shop is uh, still giving her and uh bringing people in through the doors we wish you nothing but the best thanks for sharing your message as well oh my
my goodness. Thank you so much for having us and for supporting small businesses always. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Mary. Mary Luciani is the owner of The Pale Blue Dot in Hamilton. Check them out online, thepaleblue.shop.com for those earth-friendly products. I, I'll be honest, I've been in the store a couple of times. It's, it's really, just to go in is really cool. And why not pick something for yourself or for a loved one? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know a lot of the attention internationally is with what's going on in Gaza, and rightfully so. There is another war continuing in Ukraine. We should not forget about that. And this week, NATO is starting to hold its largest drill since the Cold War got me to thinking, what's going on? This is part of the Steadfast Defender 2024 initiative. 90,000 troops are gathering to participate in these drills that will supposedly continue on into May. Here to talk about it is Andrea Sharon, the director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies and a professor of political studies at the University of Manitoba. Andrea, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Is something imminent here? What? Why is NATO undertaking these drills? Well, exercises are a way of making sure that an alliance like NATO can operate together. Um, Keep in mind, there are 31 members in NATO, soon to be 32. So on the one hand, Steadfast Defender 2024 was long anticipated. Uh, Lots of planning goes into it. And this is sort of the regular business of NATO. On the other hand, because of events in Ukraine, uh, it's a reminder that the NATO alliance needs to be prepared for this near-peer competitor, Russia. Uh, and, and so there's certainly heightened attention to this exercise. Are all NATO nations taking part in these drills, including Canada? Canada will certainly be participating. Um, Not all uh, nations will be participating actively. In some cases, they're on the planning side. Um, And what NATO is doing is going to more of a a regional exercise. So it's making sure that the different regions that NATO has in Europe has the right partners with the right capabilities uh, to be able to respond. So, for example, uh, a sort of an add-on exercise in the Arctic is one that Canada will uh, participate in called Nordic Response, and that takes place in, in March. We've also heard from NATO's top commander who said that these drills are going to target how Uh, NATO could potentially respond to a Russian attack on NATO soil. Is is this also perhaps a a, a show of force, if you will, from NATO to say, hey, we're, we're serious about defending our land? Well, I think you see that in the name of the exercise, Steadfast Defender. Um, interestingly, NATO actually doesn't re- reference uh, Russia in their communiques about this exercise, but the assumption is it it, it is Russia. Russia is mentioned in other documents as uh, NATO's near-peer competitor. Um, but, you know, NATO has always been a defensive alliance. Um, you notice that the exercises take place in and around Europe. This is not about NATO trying to exercise in somebody else's area of responsibility. And so it really is to be able to defend um, uh, European allies, make sure that North American allies like the U.S. and Canada are able to get there in time to be able to provide assistance. Could Russia potentially, I know they're not named in these documents, but could it potentially see this as a provocation? 
Well, Russia will remember there are always uh, many audiences that you're speaking to. And so to the Russian audience, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin is going to say, you know, see, this is evidence that NATO has always had it in for Russia. And this is aggression on their uh, on their part. Um, he, he will make political hay of it. But he himself has had a number of exercises much larger than this one. Uh, and, and whereas NATO is always Always uh, in, informing the organization of security um, in Europe of these exercises and allowing um, observers to watch. You know, it's, it's very hit and miss with on the Russian side. And Russia has a habit of, of having snap exercises, which means they are um, not declared. They happen all of a sudden. And in this heightened geopolitical uh, world, that, that makes everybody a lot more nervous. And so I would say that, you know, whereas NATO has been consistent about communicating these exercises, transparent that they're happening and the number of troops involved, um, that's been less the case on the Russian side. In our last 30 seconds, I'm, I'm sure this is uplifting to those in Ukraine. Well, it is. Um, but, you know, I think Ukraine would be the first to say it's great that NATO is exercising to defend NATO. But what Ukraine needs immediately is more assistance defending itself. It needs more access to ammunitions and to capabilities. And so, uh, you know, I think Ukraine would say, yes, of course, NATO must uh, practice defending itself, but not to forget to actively defend Ukraine right now. That's a good point. University of Manitoba professor Andrea Sharon, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Why are we seeing so many fake stories on X and other social media that are spouting claims about famous personalities? So-and-so quit in disgrace or you won't believe what this person did or breaking news, shocking stories involving so-and-so and And the list is a who's who of some of the famous, most famous people in this country. Howie Mandel, Michael Buble, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, Lisa Flam, Mary Berg, who's a talk show host. It's the social version of the National Enquirer, but it's costing people a lot of money in some respects. Is this Elon Musk's version of free speech? Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and journalist and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Great to be with you this morning, Rick. These uh, these social posts, they're not just posts. They also have links to bonus, uh, bogus online stories using uh, fake endorsements, I guess, at the end of the day. How is this allowed? Well, they're ads. Uh, and they're ads that are designed to look like news stories, that are designed to look like they're coming from news organizations that we know and trust and believe are legitimate. And of course, I mean, the the tell, the giveaway is the the hyperbolic nature of those headlines, right? You know, Mary Berg says something scandalous. You know, Howie Mandel, you wouldn't believe what Handy, Howie Mandel just did. Lisa Laflamme, you know, gets us the story on this latest obesity cure. I mean, you know, it, 
that should be enough for us to see these things and go, oh, Lisa Laflamme would never say that. Mary Berg, certainly. You know, I, I've seen ads that are that are sort of iffy. This should be obvious to me, but it isn't. Uh, and so there are uh, advertisers out there who uh, believe that this is the way to get us to click on links that we wouldn't otherwise click on. If I said, hey, buy this crypto thing, you'd probably go, hmm, that seems a little bit off. But if Lisa Laflamme tells me to click on it, maybe I will. And so it overcomes our skepticism it overcomes people's unwillingness and inability to do a little bit of due diligence uh, and it basically tricks us into clicking on something that we wouldn't otherwise go after and and as a result we end up on uh, scammy spammy ai generated websites that try to sell us things that we don't want like crypto like i don't know school supplies whatever it is it's a wide range of things they're trying it and clearly this celebrity endorsement scam type strategy seems to be working and it's getting a lot of attention yeah people have been duped uh, out of more than a billion dollars worldwide so it is definitely working for the bad actors that have launched these do, do we need a reset when it comes to ads online i.e you know you you read these stories and if you're gullible enough you'll believe that it's true and you won't necessarily think it's an ad do we need something splashed across the top of the page saying this is an advertisement Oh, I've been screaming that for years, Rick, and that doesn't seem to be happening. I think we need a reset on two sides of the equation. One, certainly it has to come from the platform. So if, you know, we're seeing these on X, formerly known as Twitter, we're seeing them on Facebook, we're seeing them on Instagram, we're seeing them across the entire social media spectrum. And so the platforms, the companies that are responsible for these services, they need to do a better job of ensuring that that uh, advertisers on their platforms are in fact legit. Uh, and they need to do a better job of differentiating between news content and advertising content. Now, of course, Meta very famously removed news content from its platform in Canada uh, last year in a protest over Bill C-18. So in the vacuum left by no news on these platforms, now we have ads masquerading as news and a company not doing what it can to tell us, hey, this isn't uh, what you think it is. And so, yeah, these companies have to become a lot better at uh, identifying it, removing it, making it clear to us when they come across it, uh, and basically being more responsible police of this kind of content. And then the other side of the equation is you and me and all of our listeners and everyone who is online, we need to do a better job of filtering this content. And so when we see it, uh, rather than blindly clicking on these links, we or, uh, you know, option B, which is ignoring them, we can't just walk away from it. We have to identify and then report, use the tools that are available to us to say, hey, this isn't legit tell the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the X's of the world, you've got a problem on your platform. You need to do something about it because it's becoming a bit of a cesspool. In many of these instances, uh, the real logos are being used, company logos like CTV, like CBC. Are those companies reacting? Are they going to X or going to Facebook to say, hey, you got to stop this? They are. In fact, uh, in the wake of this latest wave of ads uh, featuring Mary Berg, who is a CTV uh, personality, she hosts her own show, The Good Stuff, there, uh, Bell Media has released uh, a statement saying that they are aware of these ads, that they are uh, working to try to get them uh, removed, and they encourage uh, anyone who comes across them uh, to do the same, to report them. Uh, and that is a huge problem. Imagine if you're a company, you've invested, you know, how many millions of dollars, if not more, 
over the years to build your brand and build that trust with your community. And now you have some, you know, random, you know, internet scammer basically stealing your brand and using it for their purposes. Uh, so it is a huge problem, a huge violation of copyright and intellectual property. And we know that legitimate companies everywhere, uh, part of their marketing effort is going toward fixing this, toward protecting their interests. But uh, it's, it's a huge problem. Uh, and unfortunately, they're playing catch up because the platforms make it so easy for these ads to be placed. Uh, and it's almost like whack-a-mole. As soon as you get those ads taken down, uh, new ones appear in their place, maybe featuring other logos, featuring other stars, other headlines, who knows, but uh, you're always on the lookout. If you're responsible for a brand, you're always looking for these because there, chances are there is some scammer out there who's coming after you. And it appears to be getting worse as opposed to better. we got to certainly go the other way. Carmi, thanks for your time this morning and waking up with us here on GMA. Appreciate being here, Rick. Thanks for having me. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. I think this is, well, there's a number of factors in here, but I think we're just too gullible as well. I mean, $1 billion, people have been duped by a, a billion dollars ordering products that are being shilled by these celebrities. In fact, they're they're not even, but they have no idea <laughs> until they see it on social to say, what? I'm not endorsing that. No, stop. By, don't buy that. Yikes. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Over the weekend, another monumental occasion this time from officials in Japan. That nation has become the fifth on the planet to successfully land on the moon. The Smart Lander for Investigating Moon, or SLIM, touched down early Saturday morning. It looks like on the telemetry that SLIM is on the surface of the moon. The SLIM has um, been communicating uh, to the Earth station. The solar cell is not generating electricity at this point in time. This is a car-sized spacecraft that has landed ever so precisely on the lunar surface. That's part of the conversation we're going to have next with our guest, Dr. Elena Hyde, director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University. He joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Hyde, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. It's great to be here. Yes, uh, very interesting about this new little slim lander they put on the moon. And the difference between this and other missions to the moon is the precision of this lunar aircraft is this an example of the evolution of space travel? Oh, absolutely. And the, the precision and the size were both sort of designed to uh, investigate a new mode, if you will, of lunar uh, exploration. Smaller crafts, more precise landing, uh, more compact equipment. And it is, it is actually quite small. The size of this thing uh, is, you know, a bit smaller than a, a two-meter square box, basically, and for, um, which is kind of tiny for what they want it to do. And, uh, yeah, it's very, very fun stuff. Yeah, from the precision aspect, this is able to land within a 100-meter radius as opposed to a, from what I've read, a five- or six-kilometer radius. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 100 meters, that's that's not that far. Like, I could, oh, sure, 100 meters, I could walk that easy. But, um, yeah, as you say, kilometers and five, six, actually 10 kilometers. Other recent moon missions tend to have, uh, you know, quite a larger radius that they could be, they could be found in. And they, they believe that they have done it. 
um, their their landing area in that uh, Shioli crater on the moon. Um, they're still verifying it just to make sure that it was really within that 100-meter um, circle, but uh, it looks quite good. So why is this important? Well, accuracy is key because, as we know from here on Earth, 100 meters away, there might be all kinds of different things. Uh, there might be a mountain. There might be, uh, you know, uh, some sort of big valley or cave or sharp rocks you don't want to land in. So accurately pinpointing where you want to go is great, especially if your craft does not have wheels. And a lot of these do not. Um, if you have a rover or something that can drive, um, usually they have limited ranges. So being able to actually land where you want to be is uh, really, really great for your science and make sure that you're investigating the right thing as well as not falling down any big, uh, you know, sort of caves on the moon. This is also the latest unmanned mission to whether it's somewhere in outer space or on the moon. And you, you talk about technology and the evolution of technology, sending a, a device to the moon to study whatever it's going to study and, you know, relay those details back to Earth is just, I still find that mind-boggling. Yeah, exactly. I um, it is It is really, really cool to see this new craft come forward because it is uh, combining a lot of technology that we've seen before, but not in this way. And the um, you might remember from the, the Perseverance Mars rover, they had this cool landing procedure where they sort of had a crane and they had jets that came down to stabilize it as it landed. And it had a, what's called a soft landing. Um, and we've seen on Earth, we've seen some rockets come back from SpaceX and soft land to be reused. And now we're seeing a similar technology where this craft was actually hovering a bit with jets, uh, creating a soft landing as it came down on the moon. Um, so it makes it much more feasible for these small craft to survive <laughs> and, and do good science and to communicate back with us, which is great. Dr. Elena Hyde is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University, and we're talking about Japan becoming the fifth country to successfully land on the moon as their slim aircraft touched down early Saturday morning. Do you think this technology is going to help others? Um, you know, NASA's Artemis program wants to go back to the moon, wants to bring humans back to the moon in, in a few yes. years. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And this... This kind of smaller, uh, accurate technology, being able to land things on the moon that could potentially, you know, support astronauts, um, what they're talking about is, hey, this is going to be really great if we do find out exactly where on the poles of the moon that we have uh, locations for, for water, uh, actual water ice on the moon, oxygen, fuel, those are important resources that if we landed small craft, uh, instead of making humans go survey the whole moon, we might be able to not just find out where these are, but even um, put resources there that would allow us to start having um, access to that water and oxygen and fuel. So I, I hope that they regain their communication with this probe. Um, as, as you may know, that solar panels were not quite at the right angle um, to generate electricity, but it's a great uh, proof of concept and um, overall a, a qualified success here. We've been to the moon decades ago. Are we still learning about the, the, the surface and, and what is on it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, the, the water on the moon is, is 
um, probably one of the newest uh, discoveries or sort of, um, you know, officially recognized now as a real discovery. It's been verified several times. Um, but we went to the moon and we didn't go back. So there's still a lot to explore on the surface of the moon, not just for, you know, humans, but also in terms of the moon's evolution and, um, you know, rock composition and all kinds of great stuff. So it's... Uh, it's a pretty exciting time last for one, lunar exploration. Last one for you. We got about <laughs> we got about forty five seconds. We we have the International yes. Space Station. We've had that for years. When are we yes. going to have a lunar space station? Oh, gra- glad you asked that. The Lunar Gateway is actually on the menu. A lot of people are really really interested in putting a small space station around the moon. Um, the official proposal is called the Lunar Gateway, and we're hoping that it becomes part of this new. Um, sort of Artemis era of moon exploration, but it would make the moon much more accessible because you wouldn't have to go all the way to the moon um, and all the way back. You could actually use that that space station as a um, a halfway point, and uh, I'm very excited for it. So there there are proposals for it. It's it's a wonderful time. <laughs> Dr. Hyde, appreciate your insight into this topic. Thanks for joining us. All right, thank you. Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory at York University. By the way, have you been trying to do the mental math and what are the four other countries to successfully land on the moon? Well, Japan obviously is one. You know, the U.S. is the other. The Soviet Union, India, and China. Those are the only five that have been to the moon. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.